Hello, Gary. How are you? Well, we're doing. <laughs> I've yes, had well, my dinner. Congratulations. I just fielded a request for breakfast. Oh, excellent. Which probably illustrates the whole issue of working for Locus as neatly as you possibly can, doesn't it? Um, actually, it does. So what I'm trying to do is figure out, as what I'm always trying to figure out, is mm-hmm. what to read, or more importantly, what not to read next. <laughs> so it's a much easier decision to make. Actually, you know, it's funny you should say that, I mean, quite seriously, because I was thinking about what we might talk about. Uh, and when I was doing it, I was just looking at the latest list of books that have come in to be assigned for review, right? And it crossed my mind that, you know, I, we don't often discuss what criteria each individual reviewer uses to decide if they want to review a book. I mean, you know, whether they should or whether they would want to or anything else, you know. I mean, setting aside mm-hmm. the greater needs of the magazine and when you're asked to review something, I mean, how do you decide? I should um, I should have sent you a copy of the introduction reviews collection I just had because the title of the introduction is Unprincipled Criticism, and that's kind of my motto. Mm-hmm. I have no principles whatsoever <laughs> uh, other, than, other than what comes from the book itself. I mean, it's, uh, it, it's odd. I think people um, do get... Uh, mistaken ideas about how Locus does reviews because so many places assign reviews and if you if you don't review what you're assigned, you're out of a job in there. Sure, sure. There's no freedom there at all. And of course, we have a lot of freedom. Uh, and I get some books uh, that are sent to me by Locus, some books that are sent yeah. to me by publishers. Yeah. And um, by and large, uh, the, the first thing I will look at is, is somebody else likely to cover this. And you and I will frequently talk about that and that will solve the problem. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Sometimes it's a question of something I've never heard of, or in some cases, maybe something you've never heard of. Mm-hmm. And then you just actually have to start reading the book and see if it, it, it grabs you. I got one like that today. I think I emailed you about it. Yeah. Uh, well, didn't you um, get the new Ian McDonald book? I got the new Ian McDonald book. Well, that's, that's, that's an easy decision. It uh, is. Any new Ian McDonald novel. That is. Even though that itself is interesting, because it, it tells you how his career has changed in the last mm-hmm. five years. Because, you know, before River of Gods, Reviewing a Ian McDonald book had become not obvious, I think, for Locus. I think you that's know. true. I, but, I remember uh, reviewing um, books by him a long time ago. I'm thinking yeah. of what was that? Practically his first book, Desolation um, Road. Uh, it was the one after Desolation Road. Out in Blue Six. No, okay, it was the one after that. I read Out in Blue Six, but King, King of Morning, Queen of Day. Shark. Yeah. Okay, King of Morning, Queen of Day, the fantasy not, uh, book. Right, and it was not even at the top of the list of reviews. It was the fourth or fifth review down. He was not, at that time, what we would have considered a headliner. No, no. Right. And now he certainly is. Very much. I, th- I think the last string of books that he's done, um, you, know, you know, Brazil, River of Gods, and now this one, uh, The Dervish House, ha- have moved him to that position very much. Um, because when I, when I started reviewing for the magazine in 97, uh, one of the first books I reviewed, or no, a little, a little while on, before I finished, I reviewed Ares Express, which was the sequel to his first book. Yeah. And nobody else at that point was interested in reviewing him for the magazine. Now it's a bit of a fist fight. There are all sorts of people sort of asking if they can review a book, you know, which is, um, a, which is a good thing. I mean, it's, just, it, it, it's further evidence that a career turns around. But I mean, the criteria for, for that I mean, there's this idea that we have that none of us, I think, are really good at articulating, which other people would be interested in, which is the idea of what makes a book important or not. And that's a question which um, changes from month to month almost. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, at, at this point, there are a few writers, and McDonald is one of them. Anybody would uh, would want to look at the new Gene Wolfe novel. Uh, another, another factor that comes in is how much... Uh, of this author have I reviewed in the last few years, and I'm sure. am I keeping up well, and I'm not yes. always doing that. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the things that's fascinating to be with McDonald, obviously his, his stellar reputation began with the um, the Indian novels, but, but actually he began with Africa, with Chaga. Yeah, yeah. And that's when I got into it. Chaga was the one that, when I forget, there was a different title. Um, I think that's but, the one, that, it, was, it was one of the Chaga novels that was never published in the States, in fact. Oh, well, I'm um, pretty sure Chaga was. Yeah, okay, yeah. Um, one of the curious things when I was teaching this uh, this class of undergraduate students last spring is that I had two. Uh, I mean, everybody, of course, was a Neil Gaiman fan. Yeah. But I had two very fairly serious-minded students who were uh, absolutely enamored of Ian McDonald. Yeah. And uh, not not Alistair Reynolds, not uh, you know, not Greg Bear, but but Ian McDonald. He is uh, he's got a, a level of popularity which uh, I think extends beyond the genre, and that's one of the things that makes him interesting. Yeah, I agree. 
Um, it's actually interesting. I mean, as well. I mean, we talk. You've talked touching on the idea of sort of reviewer fatigue, and you know that you've um, read too much of somebody. I was thinking. You know, mm-hmm. I, I started re- you know, reading Al Reynolds' Terminal World the other day, which I think you read last year, and which I'd meant to read. I read an earlier draft of it, apparently. Yeah. 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 Um, and I realized that some at some point a couple of books ago, I'd hit Al Reynolds' fatigue. I was getting these big black books sent to me from the UK. And for a little while there, I just didn't really want to read them. And now I'm back reading them and enjoying them. And I'll probably go back and read the ones that I missed because it wasn't the fact that he got less interesting per se. It was just a fatigue on my behalf. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you don't want a book a year. It's, it's the same thing like one of the other guys who shows up on the, or other authors who show up on the current list of books we've just received to, to look at for review is Steve Baxter. We've just got Stone Spring in to look at for review. And I feel the same way with him. I mean, I, co- I actually correspond with him privately, and he's a really nice guy, and he's an interesting writer. But there's mm-hmm. so much stuff. I mean, he, he writes so much. And there's that feeling that, you know, am I going to read another Steve Baxter book? I'm going to read this one. I mean, you and I have touched base because this appears to be one of the kind of Neanderthal, Cro-Magnon kind of books that he does, you know, the prehistoric ones. And they're not my favorite, you know, of his Well, work. they're not my favorite... And, and, and to be honest, I only read one of them, and there, there's nothing particularly wrong with it. But with somebody as prolific as Steve Baxter, you almost have to decide uh, which am I going to choose. Uh, mm. and I've kind of decided that mammoths are not my, his most interesting <laughs> part of his oeuvre, as far as I'm concerned. Um, the flood uh, novels were – but the other thing is he's very readable. He's very approachable. He is. He's very much I, what I think of as an entry-level science fiction writer there. You know, a handful of writers who, are, who can be very good at what they do, but who are also very friendly to new readers. And yeah. I think one of the things that any reviewer has in mind is that this is something you get an infrequent reader of the genre to look at. Uh, it's worth looking at. Robert Charles Wilson, another example mm-hmm. of that. Maybe the best example. Probably. Um, I, mean, I think that he's probably a better line-by-line writer than Baxter is, and probably has less is more well, sorry, is more accessible because he tends to put less jargon into the books. I mean, I think Steve Baxter is probably you know, the most accessible of the real hard SF sci-fi guys. Right. Uh, and, and and in that he's not unlike the person he keeps getting uh, compared to Arthur Clarke, though he's not really that much of a Clarkian writer in some way. Um, but but Wilson is is, is a you know. A more mellif- slightly more mellifluous writer, I think, you know. So. And uh, and Wilson is not terribly prolific, and it, and you get the sense in all of Wilson's novels that he uh, conceives them as novels first. I mean, his his relationships are always very carefully worked out. The family, the friendships, the betrayals, the marriages, yeah. every, every, everything becomes a kind of saga in that sense. Uh, with a science fiction idea, which is very crucial to it, but which is yeah. You, you, have the distinct sense that he did not start necessarily with the idea, but he he, he yeah. the idea for a full novel. That that could be. It. I mean, I think the other thing, and this unfortunately is true. I think, we, at least amongst the reviewers that I I talk to, I think there's a mild distrust of the prolific writer. You know, I mean, Robert Charles Wilson puts out a book a year, maybe Steve mm-hmm. Baxter could put out three in a year. Well. Um, that's true, and 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 uh, not all of them will appeal to the same audience. No. I mean, that, that, series of um, historical, British historical novels he did uh, for the first two volumes didn't even look like a science fiction yeah, novel. Yeah, yeah. Out, but I'm not sure that the people who would have read uh, the Zeely stories would have gotten the same kind of thrill out of that. And I suspect that some of the people who enjoy things like his disaster novels uh, would be mightily puzzled by things like vacuum diagrams. Sure, sure. Well, yes, you wouldn't want to necessarily have started reading Baxter with Flood and Ark and then pick up this enormous Zeely omnibus they've just put out. Exactly. You know, I think that might be a bit puzzling. Well, the point about uh, prolific writers works in the reverse, too. Somebody who's who's an unprolific writer Mm. uh, is always in danger of getting overvalued, I think. I mean, I read the new, uh, the the other thing which I'll be writing about is the new Ted Chiang novella, which is not at all a bad novella. But it occurred to me while I was reading this, here's a guy who writes one, uh, you know, mind-blowing story a year about, and we're all waiting with bated breath to see it. What if Ted Chang writes a really bad story someday? Is anybody going to be willing to admit it? Well, okay, well, there is that. I mean, I, I would you know, sort of look at the... You know, my, my thought on that is that, first of all, Ted is a pretty good self-editor. And I think that most yeah. likely, if there are bad Ted Chang stories, they're in the bottom of a very deep drawer somewhere. I um, 
However, like anybody, you don't, you know, he don't, he can't have perfect perspective on his own work, and so something that's maybe good but not brilliant might sneak out. And yeah, it is it it, it is that potential for it to be, I guess, more uh, destructive or disruptive to a career. If you're doing one story every two years, you kind of have to, you know, hit a home run every single time. And the remarkable thing about Ted Chang, as opposed to one or two other, you know, short story writers, particularly who aren't very prolific, is that for the most part, for the last 20 years or whatever it is, every time he has written a story, he has hit the ball out of the park. Um, now, I, ha I have not read The Life Cycle of Software Objects yet, but um, I know he struggled with it for at least three years because we talked to... Well, we didn't talk about it. That would suggest we, we actually had a dialogue about it. But every now and again, I would sort of quietly say to him, I'm doing a book project and I'd love to have anything you'd like to send me. And he'd say, oh, I'm working with this, this novella and if I should happen to finish it, you can have it. And, you know, it never got finished you know, for those during those years. So I assume he was banging away on it, trying to find ways to make it work. And I imagine it's good, and I imagine it's even very good. But it'll, I'm interested to see whether it's something that will sort of knock your socks off or just leave you going. Well, th this, is, this is what I mean, and it's, it's enormously unfair to any writer to expect that. And it's yes. um, his own perfectionism that leads to it. Uh, there, uh, you know, there are better... Ted Chang stories than others. I mean, I think mm -hmm. Exhalation was astonishing compared to I don't know, liking what you see, which was which was a good idea worked out in a, yeah. in, a in a good conscientious way, but not nearly the the depth of the idea that in a story like Exhalation. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and there are other writers who are I, I'm sure under the same kind of pressure. The, the other thing which is related to this, I was talking Mary Rickert uh, the other day, or we were emailing back and forth. And she's one of a handful of writers, along with, with Kelly Link and, and Ted, um, who are under some such enormous pressure to write the most astonishingly brilliant novel when they finally do write one, that I already feel sorry for them. Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, all other issues aside, particularly, I mean, I, I don't actually imagine there ever being a Ted Chang novel, and I, I honestly don't know if he's ever tried to write one. But when it comes to Kelly and uh, Mary, I do feel that there's been an enormous pressure on them. Uh, I had this feeling, even before you know, events of the last couple of years, that you could see the the pressure of this acting on Kelly. You know, uh, sh her stories became straighter, more linear, and some of that may be something she was deliberately doing in terms of her craft. And I've got no idea because we've never discussed that. But yeah, some, some of that, some of that, some of that, I think was trying to address address a young adult audience as very sure. Well. Yeah. So there are other reasons, but it also looked a little bit like as though sort of, you know, the pressure of wanting to work out how to write a novel um, impacted on it, you know, and it changed the kind of thing that she, she wrote. And it didn't make it worse. It didn't make it less interesting. It made it not like what had happened before. And I, don't, mm -hmm. I, I actually don't think any of the stories after the, that were like the stories that were before it for Kelly. I think that's true. I, I think I would agree with that. That there's a there's a sense, and if you talk to any of these three people, they mm. will talk about learning how to write a novel. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Ted has said repeatedly, uh, but people, every, the, the question he must he must get asked every time he shows his face in public is, "Must be a novel?" And, and every time I've heard him ask the question, he's, his response is, "If there's an idea that I can only handle in a novel form, I'll I'll do that." But uh, he doesn't seem to think that he has a novel-sized idea yet, which I don't know if that's true or not. But uh, Mary, I'm pretty sure, has been working on novels, but I think interested in Jeez. in trying to learn. Yeah, I, but I don't. I, I have no idea whether this is current or whether mm -hmm. something's gone on. There's there's a sense when you're a short story writer, and um, uh, I mean, uh, you know, Ted has a job, and uh, and and Kelly runs a publishing. So Mary is is basically uh, you know living in Cedarburg, Wisconsin, uh, with Bill, who makes a, a fairly decent, I guess. But she's concerned. You know, she's never going to make a lot of money as a writer, uh, even with the most brilliant short stories in the world. And I think there's, you know, most writers who, who aren't um, very comfortable financially have to think about things like that. Oh, of course. I mean, there, there are countless cases, and, you know, and actually one of the odd things in, in the field is that there, there can be a real snobbery about when, you know, you see someone obviously trying to pay the bills, you know, and mm -hmm. it's happened, I mean, either for, you know, um, career reasons, I've seen it done once or twice, but I mean, when, say, Elizabeth Hand writes a Boba Fett novel, you know that she's put putting food on the table. Mm -hmm. uh, when Sean Stewart writes a Yoda novel, you know, you, you know, you assume it's the same kind of a thing. And and we do tend to look down on that in a way that's not really fair because, um, you know, as you say quite rightly, a Mary Rickard, if all she was doing, and I've got no idea about her private life at all and wouldn't begin to comment, but 
Um, if Mary Rickert was trying to make a living off her short stories, she would have died of starvation years ago. Because, I mean, she's only written 15 short stories or something, I guess. Well, and and, and the same thing would could have been said years ago about Howard Waldrop. Or Absolutely. Or about Cordwainer Smith years before that. Well, I mean, one um, of the things that's obviously changed, and every time you talk to, you know, ye olde timers, they'll tell you this. I mean, you know, a Bob Silverberg could pay for an apartment in downtown Manhattan off short story income in the 1950s. Right, publishing something like a million words a year. Absolutely. I mean, he um, published but, a, a, but yeah, the, 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 There were lots of paying markets, and there were... Uh, and and, and uh, a lot of the people from that era could could write in multiple genres, like mm-hmm. you know Bob would write in all kinds of digest size magazines. Yes. That simply doesn't exist. No, no. And when you look, I mean, I'm looking at uh, uh, Mary Ricketts' bibliography right now, and since her co- first collection came out, she's published six stories. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and that's across four years nearly. And you think, well, I mean, if you're trying to make a living from writing, and you do six stories in four years, you know, you need to be making about what about forty thousand dollars a story. Well, that's uh, yeah, that's. And you know, That's rather astounding. And I, I doubt that even um, someone working for the New Yorker would be making anything like that. You know, there there may um, be weird cases, but not many. So. Well, nobody publishes ten stories per year in the New Yorker. Well, no, no, no. Uh, but I mean, if you publish one a year and you get paid thirty thousand dollars for it, but you don't. Well, that's true. Point, you know? That's true. You're doing you're doing better. Um, yeah. But even then, it's it, it, it's simply something that uh, is it's almost uh, it's, it's almost like being a poet these days. It, 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 it's almost a, a kind of writing that needs to be subsidized. Yeah. Uh, and yet, if Mary Rickert or, or or Kelly Link or Ted Chang or any of these people didn't publish a story for two or three years, a lot of us would get worried. Well, certainly. I mean, that actually that's an interesting point. Um, you know, you say a lot of people would get worried. I think a small number of people in sat well. For the most part, a small number of people inside inside our very intense bubble would get worried. You know what I mean? I think it would really impact on yeah. us and our community. I think if, arguably, with if Kelly or Ted, particularly Kelly, didn't publish much, as she's not, then there's a whole community beyond our community that would notice that. Uh, but I don't know. I'm not aware of how much the rest of the world watches their writers in the way that we watch ours. I mean, well, that's probably true. I'm kind of. Uh, and we're looking for things that the rest of the world isn't looking for. You're right. No one, uh, no one that I know, uh, yeah. in my real life would would storm Barnes and Noble saying, "How come you don't have a new Mary Richards collection here?" Um, Whereas you and I might prowl the shelves. Well, we're worried about one of. Okay, this, this brings up another issue which I think is fascinating because yeah. these are we, these are three writers, and we could probably name a half dozen more. Sure, sure. Uh, even younger ones mm. who are, are actively doing something new. You you expect whether you expect to be surprised by their next story or not, you probably will be. Yes. Uh, there's something genuinely inventive about them, and you have a sense that they are moving this whole uh, field, what Kluge calls fantastica, because they won't even call it science fiction. No. They're, uh, they're moving it into some new territory, and that was and, and Kelly Link was the first really dramatic person to do that in years when she appeared. And there is a sense of newness, and there's a there's a thirst for that within our field, which raises another issue that I was going to ask you about at some point anyway, because I was looking at uh, Gardner's review of your Swords and Dark Magic anthology. Oh yeah, yeah. And have not even, and I've not read the anthology yet, but I didn't notice until I saw the review that the subtitle is the New Sword and Sorcery. Yes. And then I thought, okay, now you yourself have done two new new space operas. Yeah. Uh, let, let me think for a minute. There's uh, there's the new Weird. Uh, <laughs> yeah. There was uh, Peter Straub's Poe anthology was the new horror. Um, am I missing something here? There's, there may be another new movement out there, yeah, but th- that's that's well, there the was hard a, there, there was, a, I guess, the new age fabulous the way back when that uh, conjunction. Uh, and arguably, we're living through the new steampunk. And well, is there, but there's, I don't, I haven't seen an anthology called the new steampunk yet. Oh, you will never. But I'm, I'm, I'm sure that there will be a new post steampunk anthology probably. Yeah. The thing that strikes me is that there's a hunger for newness in the field, which is uh, partly marketing, partly what you have to label things, because obviously uh, the new space opera seemed at the time to be an identifiable movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, same thing may be true with the new sword and sorcery. Or at that time. Mm. One of the things that does occur to me that this, the kind of archetype of this sort of we are going to do something which has never been done before anthology, of course, with the Dangerous Visions anthology. And it also occurs to me that when Harlan was doing that, more than 40 years ago now, uh, he was actually dealing with a group of writers who had faced uh, at least informal kinds of censorship. Sure. There were certain topics they couldn't cover, certain language they couldn't use. Uh, and there was, at least in the first Dangerous Visions, a genuine sense of liberation on the part of some of those writers. So we can do this now. Yeah. 
the problem is that for the last 40 years, you've pretty much been able to do that. So there's there's, well, there's not a need to break old barriers in the way there was. I don't know if this answers your question, but this, this you know while I was while you were talking, this is what what really occurred to me. Um, what happened with Dangerous Visions is utterly unlike what happened with any of these new anthologies that you're talking about or new movements you're talking about. Uh, the new weird, oh, sorry, the <laughs> the new wave wasn't that new in, in the sense of an old wave rejiggered. It was the, mm-hmm. the, the first outpouring of something closer to the source. I mean, however, whenever you date it, however you date it, modern science fiction effectively started in, in the 1930s. By the 1960s, when the new wave started, you're still a short distance out from the, the source of everything. So, so it's a major evolutionary change. I feel that with the new weird, with the new space opera, with the new swords and sorcery, whilst they all... Ha- ring changes on the source material there as much as anything a generational change at some point there will be a new new space opera or a new Mm. new weird or whatever there won't be a new new wave because that was a different kind of a thing at its essence I mean the new swords and sorcery essentially is a new generation of writers writing grittier more political stuff growing out of a slightly different tradition of writing swords and sorcery and also this feeling that I mean I know there's a feeling amongst a certain community you know sub-community within, it, within our broader fantastic community, that Swords and Sorcery sort of fell off the radar. And there are these writers who are keeping sort of the beacon alive through the dark days. And then gradually, mm-hmm. late, some writers have become you know, more uh, popular, better known, and it begins to come back to, um, uh, you know, to, to the forefront again. And that's what gives you the, the idea of this new space opera, or new Swords and Sorcery. And in fact, one of the criticisms of the new Swords and Sorcery book that we've done already, I've seen it. I mean, it was happening well before we ever... Uh, announced anything mm-hmm. was, are they going to do justice to, in effect, the writers who have held true to us through these dark times and you know, appeared in the small presses and in places like Blackgate Magazine and whatever else? Or mm-hmm. are they going to just go find other people? You know, uh, And it was, that was a, a question we were never going to answer entirely to their satisfaction. But well, th- yeah. I think that's the difference. It's not necessarily that the new space opera is quantum a quantum change from the old space opera, though it's different. It's 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 the next evolutionary phase of the same beast. Well, it could uh, okay. I I I can agree with that, and I can also agree that there's a there's a sense in which uh, any of these subgenres become ossified and become sort of uh, split into two. And to some extent, there's a sense in the new space opera that uh, and, and both of those. Volumes and in several of the novels, like Al Reynolds' novels, there's a sense that space opera used to be fun, but we don't want to write that badly. <laughs> so let's see if we can sort of resurrect it and do something new. And, and space, uh, a sword and sorcery strikes me as, um, I have, like I say, I've not seen it. I don't know if there are any, uh, you know, Robert E. Howard type kinds of stories in there. But my sense of the sword and sorcery community is that it's split more or less into in, in, into two camps long ago. Uh, the, the Robert E. Howard people are still enormously fond of Robert E. Howard, and the, sure. there's another camp that descends from Fritz Leiber, who is frankly a much more literate writer. And yes, but well, actually, I think chronologically you miss another major precursor, and that's Glenn Cook. I mean, one of the great hmm. surprises to me, I was a, well, as you know, I was a world fantasy judge back in 2002, and we we're trying hmm. to decide who should get a Lifetime Achievement Award, which is, you know, it's a major decision for a judge. Or for the for the jury, and one of our one of the members, in fact, Stephen Erickson, who's got a story in our book, um, put forward the name Glenn Cook, and everyone's kind of going, "Well, why would you talk about Glenn Cook? I was, doesn't he just write those funny kind of detective novels with the you know like you know dropping golden coins and all this sort of stuff?" And it was only at that point that I became aware that he had been seen as a major progenitor of a modern form of space opera, of sorts of sorcery, that had grown out of his experiences in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that's yeah. a major change. I mean, I, I guess you could see it kind of sitting in, in the tradition of Robert E. Howard. I don't really know, but um, he's he's the other one, and arguably you, you could you could put that the he has the greatest influence on the book that we've done. Mm-hmm. You know, and it was interesting because I th- I was giving this some thought because we were doing the Swords and Sorcery book at the same time as I was working with Charles on the Fritz Leiber book. So I was going back and rereading some of the Lankmar stuff. And Lankmar's had a huge influence on this book, and anything to do with Swords and Sorcery you know, is massively influenced by Lankmar. But it is Lankmar well, by way of Glenn Cook. Um, which is something. I, I, I had the same impression of Glenn Cook as, as you described, and now that uh, I guess Nightshade has been reprinting him. Mm. 
and uh, it, it seems that there is a, a, a different audience there, which may be a subterranean audience that hasn't been part of the tradition. I guess what I'm thinking is actually going back to the day, days of weird tales. Yeah. The two strains were visible then with Howard, uh, and, and I'm picking on Howard because he's the most obvious name. But, sure, sure. But Lyra was an astonishing writer. Yes. Uh, in, in a number of genres. I've been looking at his stuff recently, too. Um, so, so that kind of, the, the idea that we're, I have, I have a dual reaction to, to the notion of, of newer writers, newer generation of writers, saying we're going to go back and look at the old forums mm. and do them well, because there always were writers in the old forums who were astonishing. Um, there, there are elements of cyberpunk that, uh, that still haven't done, haven't mm. really, I'm going back to the first generation of cyberpunk. There were things there that really never outdid what Alfred Bester did. Sure. Um, and the same thing's true that it's going to be very difficult to do, uh, you know, a collection of stories that creates a world as complex as, as Lankmar was. I think so. So, but I think but the other question was, yeah. Uh, okay, so 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 we can look at, at, at things like the New Weird, which is sort of vaguely based on a constellation of things that people like Clark Ashton Smith sure. and people that China Meagle used to like. Space Opera was easy to identify. Sword and Sorcery was easy to identify, and. Other than steampunk, are there any new subgenres that are going to last for 40 or 50 years to the extent that those have? I think there are people out there who'd like to think that there are. I mean, people, things like uh, manor punk, I think, was touched on for a little while. And there's a few little things, but mostly, I mean, our, our genre is <clears throat> in, you know, inherently constantly searching for newness, which is something you've touched on. And mm -hmm. there is this hunger. We're, we will make it up if, if it's doesn't exist. I think that's true. We will go. The, people are going. Well, what's the next movement? You're going. Well, why does there have to be a next movement? The ones that are successful, the one or two. In fact, the one or two movements that really impacted the field were very organic. They weren't people sitting around going, "Gosh, let's start a movement." They're going, "I'm really inspired by this or angry about that." You know, the new wave people. I don't think we're sitting around. How would we? What would, should the next movement in science fiction be? They're thinking we want to, you know, sort of stretch boundaries, challenge censorship, improve literacy. When, or the, you know, the quality of writing in the field. When uh, Sterling and Gibson you know, pushed cyberpunk, they were pushing against a sense of bloatedness and whatever else they saw in the field rather than what's the next movement. Now, I mean, even, I mean, the new wave, I mean, the new, not new, the new weird, we know mm -hmm. was John Courtney Grimwood and China Mieville in a pub going, you know, we can find a way to sell our books. Mm -hmm. um, and... Well, Mike Harrison actually started that. Well, sorry, yeah. And then with uh, the, I mean, the new Swords and Sorcery, I, I think, I mean, that really is, that's a little different, I guess, because I think there's a, there's a genuine movement in the background, and it's people actually like myself and uh, Lou Anders coming along and saying, well, that's obviously the new Swords and Sorcery. You know, I don't know, mm -hmm. I've never had a conversation. It'd be interesting to talk to someone like James Engie, who's really well-informed about this stuff, um, and ask whether the people who write for Blackgate magazine over the last 15 years saw themselves as being uh, new swords and sorcery writers or they were just keeping the flame alive and it was only when somebody else came along that, oh, oh, that's a new swords and sorcery because someone like me had forgotten swords and sorcery since I was 15, you know. I read Lankmar when I was a kid, I re read a few other things and then, then I went off and did something else and it's only coming back and picking up you know, a Joe Abercrombie novel or a Stephen Erickson novel, and you kind of go, oh, wow, these guys are now, they're still here, and they're doing something better than they did before or different or whatever else. Because, of course, like anything else, when you go through a cycle, I have this feeling I that... I wonder. Yeah? Uh, no, I, I wonder if you... Uh, we'll get some pushback from some of those people because of this anthology, because in every one of these genres we've talked about, there have always been keepers of the flame. Uh, as, as, as a movement, uh, even though it may have lasted all five years when it happened, Splatterpunk came and went, but there are still people keeping that alive. I, I, I look at some of the small horror scenes, and, oh, the world is not is not hungering for any more Clive Barker imitations. They're there. No, no, no. Um, well, even though Clive Barker himself has moved beyond it. Well, the, you know, look, there are. I mean, there are those people, and you know, there are those books. I mean, there have been a string of uh, swords and sorcery anthologies over the last ten years or fifteen years or whatever uh, that have come out from small presses. Some of which were very good, but none of which really got any play. Um, I'm just trying to think of the name of this. There's a series of them, and it wasn't Flashing Swords, but it's something like that. And they've they've done a bunch of these anthologies over the last handful of years. So. Yeah, I mean, you, you're right to say that, that they, those guys are the ones who are going to look at... I mean, in fact, when we announced the likely table of contents for the book that we did, uh, we got a lot of, well, hang on a minute, you know, I don't really think of Orson Scott Card as a swords and sorcery writer, I don't, which is fair enough. I don't really think of Robert Silverberg as a swords and sorcery writer. I don't really think of... And, you know, and why didn't they pick 
insert names here. Mm-hmm. Now, from our perspective, as I mean, as you know, uh, you and I discussed this again before. Um, there, there so, so, sometimes you know, you're not aware of a writer because we're fallible, but I mean, quite often you, know, you, you you solicit stories, you can't get them. Uh, and other times, I mean, there are practicalities. I mean, we got Joe Abercrombie and Scott Lynch and those kind of guys who are modern swords and sorcery writers and Steve Erickson. Right. And we got some of the older guys, but you, you never get anybody. And all, get, sorry, get everybody. And also, you get that thing where, you know, you're not going to make everybody happy with the book. Well, there's also, there are also these sub-fandoms, which I'm only marginally connected with occasionally. There's uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs fandom. There's clearly a well-organized Robert Howard fandom. And, uh, and, and, and to some extent... Uh, a large part of what they value are pastiches, uh, mm. and, uh, and that's probably what they're looking for. To some extent, then, uh, it's, a, it's almost a betrayal when you bring new people in and try to rethink the genre in different ways. Yeah. Uh, there's, I'm sure that there, there, there are Gernsback fans out there, I suspect. <laughs> I name one, but I won't. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, that, that's very true. I mean, not to stop, you know, sort of not that we're picking on, but not to stop picking on the swords and sorcery community when we look at this. There are... You know, just as many people out there who are writing, uh, you know, ghost stories, or they're writing, you know, and writing space opera stories, and you'll see somebody come along going, you know, they don't write space opera stories like Jack Williamson anymore. It's terrible. Mm-hmm. And you see well, and within the, and I'm sure he wouldn't mind my saying this because I know that Peter Straub has gotten exactly that kind of pushback from people who are wondering how come how come these novels that you're writing now don't look like floating dragon. Yeah. Um, you know, how come how come they're not more talisman novels and that sort of thing? Yeah, yeah. Any writer who wants to who wants to well, what he defines what he called the new horror in that anthology is going to run up against that. Yeah. Um, and he ran up against it, in fact, with the um, the the Library of America anthology. He mm-hmm. All the all the people who had favorite writers who weren't there uh, reacted in some cases uh, almost violently. I think. Yeah. So that's uh, it's 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 a market, but in terms of I guess this is the sense that uh, that what we what we're trying to do in Locus and what I see a lot of editors trying to do. I, I you doing it. I can see Ellen Dabler doing it. I can see Gordon Van Gelder doing it. Is, is is a sense that you know this is still a vital evolving literature that doesn't have to cycle back on itself, and uh, and that the materials that became a subgenre. One of two things can happen. Either that self. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily. Say, so I'm repeating <laughs> myself. Yeah. Um, they can either become self-imitative and just cycle back on themselves endlessly, like English uh, village murder mysteries or, or some westerns, mm-hmm. or they can take those materials and move them in a different direction. I'm sure that there were a lot of Western uh, readers who absolutely hate Cormac McCarthy for exactly that reason. Yeah, there are writers. Uh, there are writers who are virtually unclassifiable. These. Yeah. I mean, Grand Joyce is one who comes to mind. Jonathan Carroll is one who comes sure. to mind. That. Uh, that. I, I get the sense in some of these uh, cases they established a readership early on because it looked like they were going in one direction, but they were never actually going in that direction at all. I remember yeah. the Tooth Fairy was widely reviewed as a horror novel. Sure. And I don't think Graham Joyce has ever remotely thought of himself as a horror novel. No. And Land of Laughs. I mean, Land of Laughs, when I first encountered it, was almost pa- uh, looked on as a kind of YA fantasy novel. Believe it or yeah, not. Yeah. Uh, and that was going to be, you know, he was going to write charming stories like this. And of course, never did again. No, uh, because every one of this is, is mm-hmm. conceived from the bottom up. And that's what's fascinating about writers like that. And those are the writers that, um, I guess as a reviewer, the one thing I, I most enjoy is being surprised sure. uh, by something. And, and sometimes it's not just being surprised by uh, a writer that they already like, it's being surprised in a new way. I was surprised by China Mievel's Crocken, partly yeah. because it was a lot more fun than anything else I'd ever read by him. <laughs> It had a terrific sense of humor. It had all his inventiveness in it. It was, it was, it was at once a China medieval novel and and sure. a new kind of China medieval novel. Very much, yeah. I mean, I, I, not not to derail us too much, but I, I mean, I had enormous fun reading Perdido Street Station. But mm-hmm. to me, this book was Perdido Street Station strained through unlondone, sort of, and written better all the way through. Mm-hmm. And so it was enormously engaging. It's probably the first of his books that I thought I want to read that again soon. You know. Yeah, I can. I, I, I have that feeling because there was a sense, uh, and I had the same sense of discovery with Perdido Street Station because I, I missed King Radcliffe. Mm-hmm. Um, but by the time we got to the Iron Council, I, be, I was beginning to think I know what a China medieval novel looks like, yeah. and I don't like getting that feeling. No. Uh, and and that feeling kind of his short stories uh, never gave me that feeling. Unlondone I enjoyed. Uh, this is like the and, and you could see between some of the stories, yeah. uh, report of certain events in London and. and, mm-hmm. and uh, Moving towards something like this, yes. And now he's finally done it, and 
and I, I still suspect the you know the rumor we've heard for years that he's going to do some kind of a pure science fiction novel. That probably will happen, and it'll be Good. delightful when he does. Yeah. I will say you're touching on something that makes us not like other a lot of other readers. You know, uh, I think there's a significant portion of the genre reading community for a start who are reading for the familiar, and there's, oh, no, there's no criticism in that. But I mean, uh, I know that when I when I'm dealing with people people who read voraciously within the field who are critical about it and who maybe write and talk about it, they are after newness, novelty, the next thing, as Charles would have put it, something to talk about. Whereas quite often, um, a lot of people are going, well, I, you know, well, I, I read Al Reynolds, I know what to expect, and if he writes 500 novels just like that, I will be extraordinarily happy. I got a, a These woman are that, people... Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, the, the, that's what I think of the Sudoku reading. Um, you know, the, every puzzle looks the same, but it's different. Yeah. And that's what I mean when I talk about, uh, uh, I'm picking on English Village Mysteries because mm. of Mormon writing. But I, I used to read a lot. I know people who read them over and over and over again. And a book, uh, there's a book I read several years ago, a critic named Thomas Roberts. Who's, he's probably still around, so I shouldn't say he's forgotten. But um, he talked about people who read uh, for the book, people who read for the author, people who read for the book, and people who read for the genre. And by reading for the genre, he meant essentially these are people who read through the book at hand, they, they they look through the book to see what changes it's ringing on the familiar. Yeah. In other words, every English village mystery. Okay, uh, they they were doing this back in the 30s with Dorothy Sayers. You come up with another inventive way of murdering somebody, or another inventive way of yeah. uh, of, of introducing red herrings to the plot. And as long as you've done that sort of thing, the overall structure is the same. You don't really care about the book. You want to see what the book does for your understanding of the genre. Yeah. And. Uh, the writers, and, and I go back to Graham Joyce as an example. Graham Joyce is somebody who's never been comfortable in any genre. And as a result, I'm afraid has never built up that kind of readership. And yeah, his novels, uh, the, 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 the Memoirs of a Master Forger, uh, or How to Make Friends with Him, or what it's called, yes, in yeah. States, uh, is probably, uh, even though it's a very good novel, is probably equally puzzling to anybody who's read any one of his earlier novels. Though, though interestingly, I, I I don't know if he's going to do it, but he, he was saying when I when we spoke to him in San Jose that they want him to write another one of those, and that he very well might under the same pseudonym. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. William. Well, that, that see that that could be interesting. I mean, this is another choice that I think writers have to always make: is do I want to find a franchise? I'm not talking about doing uh, novelizations. I'm no, no. About, actually, sh- shall I shall I zero in on this franchise and and use the same character or use the same structure sure. over and over again? And, uh, and and then once you do that, it's hard to break out. One uh, one of the other reviews I was reading of a book I haven't read is the new Jasper Ford novel. Mm-hmm. And Jasper Ford had a thing going, which was hugely successful for yep. him. And it pretty much got to the point where uh, it couldn't possibly have interested him much. And he seems to be doing a new series now. Yes. And that's going to be difficult for him because he's known widely for doing one thing yeah. very cleverly, but doing it over and over again. And, and shifting gears like that it may be a challenge for him. I think it's a challenge for anybody. Uh, uh, at the very least, you know, can you carry a reader? I mean, I think when you talk about you know, readers who read through for the genre, they're the ones who are going, wow, you're ringing a change and doing something different, and so that makes me interested and happy. And there are others who will be going, gee, what I really want is the Air Affair 8. And if you could do me the, yeah, eight of, exactly. the Air Affair 8, I'm all for it. Yeah, And that's why, I mean, it's interesting. I, I don't know exactly how well Stephen Baxter sells, but... You know, he's got to be an enormous frustration because he is all over the place. I mean, he's good, mm-hmm. but but this isn't necessarily like that. I mean, and you know, never mind other stuff he may write. But I mean, you know, the um, you know books like say you know, Space or whatever else aren't necessarily much like Iron, this uh, Iron Spring or whatever it is, is going to be like. Um, and that, that's a, a huge challenge for them. But but I think it's what makes. Um, reading exciting. I mean, I always th- find that the sort of the case of writers like Peter Hamilton interesting. Yeah, you know, we, mm-hmm. we reviewed him early, and then I think there was a feeling amongst some of our reviewers that we'd got the idea. You know, and the feeling we have, whether it's accurate or not, because you kind of have to keep checking back in with a writer because they do change over time, mm-hmm. is that you know, well, there's no need to you know read or review another Peter Hamilton book because we know what he does. And really, all you need, to, or a new David Weber book, or a new Lois and Master Bujol book, or whatever else, because mm-hmm. really, they just are going to do more of what they did before. And do it very well. I mean, it's not as though mm. people can't do this well. There, there's some people even write serious characters. Um, oh yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, I was a sucker for 
for the Spencer novels, for Robert Parker's Spencer novels for a long time. Uh, it looks to me like, uh, well, Charlie Houston is somebody who seems to be able to do very well with continuing characters because he can more complex and add things. And yet, um, did you read, just, just to interrupt, did you read uh, Paul, Paul Whitcover's review of Sleepless? Uh, yes, I did. It made me want to read it. I've got, I've got a copy of Sleepless right here. It made me go off and buy a copy. Mm-hmm. Uh, because and I thought well, he's written a science fiction novel and it's different and it, you know, if, if Paul is calling it one of the best science fiction novels of the year, then, you know, you want to know about it. Well, exactly. You know, it's, it's something that would have gone right past me and this is the danger in, in doing what you and I tend to do, which is think, okay, I've read a couple of early Charlie Houston novels. They were mm-hmm. good. Uh, but I thought, okay, I know what he's doing now and obviously I don't. Yes. Uh, so now we have to look at that sort of thing and that's, that's what I mean about being surprised. Sometimes it's unfortunate. Sometimes it doesn't work out. When a writer, I remember when R. L. Stein tried to break into adult market with oh, I can't remember, but it was a really awful novel. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was uh, what, whatever you might have thought about the Goosebumps series. I was thinking I would rather read six more Goosebumps novels. Than that. <laughs> um, but see, actually, this also touches on one of my great challenges as reviews editor for the magazine, and that is that. I get, you know, when Charles would assess whether he wanted to review, uh, get a book reviewed, he was in the office in the hills in Oakland. He got all the books there. He would physically pick up the galley, look at it, and kind of read, read a page or two and go, yep, we'll have a look at that. I get a list. I get a list that I have to go, you know, sort of online. I have to go looking around because you don't get sent most of the books. Uh, and then you have to, of course, balance against what people will, will, will look at. I mean, I just got sent. I mean, you, you got uh, the Ian MacDonald galley to the, uh, this week, Dervish House. Yeah, right, exactly. I, I, got, yeah. Sent a, I got sent a PDF, right? Mm-hmm. And I hate PDFs at the best of times. And this particular one has a watermark through it on every single page saying, you know, property of Pyre Books. I'm not going to read oh, really? that. really? Yeah, yeah, I'm not going to read no, that. That's... I mean, what I'll do is, I'll, I mean, it's funny. It, if it had been, I mean, I asked for an electronic copy of it. If um, it had been anybody else's book, I just would have gone, okay, well, that's too hard and press delete kind of thing. Now, the fact that it's covered at, you know, well for the magazine means I don't have to worry anyway. But the whole electronic thing is a challenge as well. I don't like to review, I mean, even with my Sony reader, which I, uh, or even if I break down at some point get an iPad, I was playing with an iPad, and it really is easy to read books on them, I think. Mm-hmm. But it still is a, is a sense that, uh, no, I want, to, uh, I want to know that it's physically there. And Charles's uh, rule, of course, was that we weren't going to review a book unless there was a physical copy in somebody's hands of at least a, a manuscript or a galley or something. Look at those. Well, well, this is. But I think this, yeah, sorry. I was, I was going to say the, the 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 problem you have as reviews editors is 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 one which I think is uh, is, is widely misunderstood by readers not only of of, of Locus but probably well PW maybe try to cover it. You know, it's, it's it's not as though we all read every book that comes out and then decide what to review. We have to decide, or you have to decide, what looks interesting based on. You know, a PDF or a description online, or Charles sure. would, you know, say, look at a couple of pages of a book. Uh, it is very exciting. Every once in a while, I, will, I can't remember a title offhand. Every once in a while, you get a, uh, a galley which has absolutely no promotional material on sure. it at all by a writer you've never heard of, and you have no choice but to start reading the book and see if it works. Yes. And that can be really exciting when it happens. It can. I mean, uh, I, I remember when I was reviewing back, you know, back in the day, and yes, there's something about getting a, you know, a stack of paper. With, with mm-hmm. no description on it, just you know, like book title by author, and you you have to start reading to see what it is at all, right. uh, and nothing is prefigured for you because I mean, so much of the of the industry that we're in uh, or associated with is about packaging expectations so that you'll pick up and buy a book, and so it's t- telling you, it may not even tell you correctly, it's telling you what it's like and how you're going to respond to it and all this kind of thing. So when you get it out of that uh, out of that context, that is really really interesting at times. Um, I mean, I, I can think of a few books over the years that have sort of come to me as a, you know, I remember when I was living in Oakland and Charles would come out and say, okay, you're reviewing for me kind of thing. Here's a stack of paper. Go read that. And you're kind of going, what mm-hmm. is it? I, and you go, what is it? And he goes, I don't know. I, I need you to find out. Go, go work it out. Right. You know? So I remember the first the first time that happened for me with Locus was right after I started printed out the manuscript Charles had printed out of Jeff Ryman's was. Mm-hmm. And I knew, I knew, I think I'd read some of Ryman at that point, but I wasn't expecting anything like that at all. Yep. And I was just bowled over by it and was thinking, this is, I'm being bowled over by a book that nobody has told me to be bowled over by. Mm. <laughs> Have any, uh, and, and there is a lot of that that goes into the promotional copy of, uh, of books. There's an yes. increasing sense of trying to intimidate reviewers into, into praising books because of celebrity blurbs and because of personal letters from the editor and that sort of thing. Although that may be changing. Mm. Um, 
I think I mentioned to you earlier that this um, novel that's, I guess, coming out next month called The Passage by Justin Cronin. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, uh, it's, uh, when's it listed for? I can't. 6 8, uh, very quickly. Uh, but all the blurbs on it, none of them are from well known writers or critics or even the editors um, at uh, Valentine. Mm-hmm. They're all from district sales managers. Yeah. Uh, every one of 18 blurbs on it, marketing manager, district sales, VP, deputy director of publicity. In other words, the only, uh, the, the sense I get is the books are now being marketed toward the marketers rather than uh, toward uh, toward reviewers or readers. Well, so, well certainly the, the old thing that they used to say, while it's no longer strictly true, is still slightly true. And that is, you know, yeah, they used to joke, what, there are only six people in America who buy books. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, these things, we forget who... Um, ARCs and everything else are created for. I mean, they're not really created for us at all. I mean, I remember having a conversation with Jack Rems, who runs Dark Carnival Bookstore in Berkeley. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he was saying, you know, sort of these advanced reader copies that you get to review are printed for me, not for you. You know, they're, they're, well, they're, they're pretty much the left, yeah. They're, they're, they're for booksellers and libraries, and they, they have someone they send them out for review. And depending on where you review, it's a nice thing. And every publishing house will say reviews are great, but by and large, they're incidental to what they're doing. They're interested in. I mean, they, they don't need to produce nice, bright, colored galleys and everything else for you or I. They do it for booksellers and librarians or whoever else are ordering and buying books. You know, and that makes and perfect sense. You know. It makes perfect business sense, and it raises the issue which uh, comes up all the time as to whether you know reviewers, people like us, make any difference at all. And by and large, when it comes to a book like this Justin Cronin thing, which is clearly going to be a massive bestseller, and maybe a good book, I have not looked at it yet. Yes. Um, you know, the James Patterson novel, uh, there are any number of writers who are absolutely review-proof. Yes. Uh, and you can't stop you can't stop a bestseller and I'm not even interested in trying. But yeah. there are occasions there are occasions where I have a sense that reviews have made a difference to a book. Yes. Um, I think when uh, when Paolo Bacigalupi's first collection of stories came out, Pump Six, it got terrific reviews. Mm. And it was kind of an experiment for Nightshade. They you know, it was a book of short stories by somebody who at that time didn't have an off. And I think that the amount of buzz that uh, that people like us helped create about it uh, may have may have helped it and may have helped uh, create a lot of expectation for the lined-up girl. Yeah, I don't know, maybe. very well. I always wonder, I mean, the, the one that comes to mind for me is Margot Lanigan's Black Juice, mm-hmm. which um, got an amount of publicity, and certainly through our magazine got an amount of pub- publicity. And I know that Margot always felt that it made a... You know, somewhat of a difference as to how she was perceived and helped it win awards, and then you know led on to the success that has been Tender Morsels. You know. Uh, well, I think that. Yeah. I mean, I think reviews make a difference, and even if, from, I mean, from my own point of view, even if all they do is generate the dialogue that I enjoy, that enriches our field, and maybe doesn't much directly contribute towards sales, I'm happy. I mean, I'd like to I don't think it does they, contribute towards yeah, sales a little bit at least, but uh, I well, think they I, have value irrespective of it. Well, I think they do, and I think that uh, my argument has always been that writing about literature is a form of literature. I mean, it's, it's, if, if a book mm. is worth reading, it's worth writing about. Yes. But, uh, but I've been told by every publisher I've ever met that uh, what I do makes no difference at all. And, <laughs> and they're probably absolutely correct in terms of you know immediate sales out of the gate, occasionally you will read something. Well, like you said about Paul Woodcock's review of the Charlie Houston novel, it makes you want to read it. I know that happens every once in a while, but if we take um, uh, you know ten percent of Locus's readers run out and buy a book because I've reviewed it, that's still not going to make a lot of difference in most book sales. No, no. But it may make it may make a longer term difference in yes, that yeah. people do look at award nominations after that, and award they, nominations they, might uh, lead to may. better sales contract, and you get the, the Margot Lanigan effect that way. I awesome. think that when we early, very early on in Locus were reviewing Greg Egan, when not very many other people were reviewing Greg Egan, at least in the States, uh, I think that called attention to him. I think that's true. I know Charles always felt that Locus had had a very strong positive effect on Egan getting published in the United States. I mean, I have no idea mm-hmm. about the truth of it, and I wouldn't begin to comment, but I know he always felt that and always said that we had an instrumental effect. And, it, it, and I would like to think that was that was true because uh, you know, we, we are the kind of audience that values the kind of thing that he does. So, tell me what I'm going to say to you, though. We've been talking for nearly an hour, and I've got an annoyed-looking child outside who wants me to go out and make her breakfast because she refuses to make her own. should finish with one thing. As of now, and we're talking on the 8th of May, my time, what's one book you're looking forward to for the, for in, in the next, next half of the year? 
Give me some suggestions. Oh, that's not... cheating. Come on. If you're looking oh. forward to it, you would know, wouldn't you? That'll be the headline. This is the podcast where Gary Wolford admits he's not looking forward to any books at all. Well, one of them, one of them had been uh, The Dervish House, and I've got that now. So if, if you'd asked me this a day ago, it would have been <laughs> the Million Dollar Novel. How about the new Bill Gibson novel? Yes, absolutely, of course. I was in email contact with Jack Womack the other day, mm-hmm. who is, of course, a good friend of Gibson's. And um, he described the book to me, uh, the new book, and said it was really terrific. Um, and it, it, it ties up the whole pattern recognition cycle of stuff. So, I mean, there's that. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the other thing book that, that I think is interesting is that, uh, and this will be coming to you because I've got it coming from Jack at Orbit, plug, 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 is Greg Bear's new science fiction novel, Hull Zero Three. Oh, really? Which is a big space thriller, which completely well, wrong-footed me. I thought the next thing he was doing was Halo. You know, because you know he's doing a tri- trilogy of Halo novels. Well, no, th- this is before that, and it's coming oh, out, okay. coming out in November, uh, which I was completely unaware of. It's completely blindsided me, and I mean, you know, that's terrible. Given it's my job not to get blindsided by these things, but yep, big. I think it's the, yeah, the last week of November. Big sprawling, sprawling. It's what five? Yeah, about five hundred pages. Um, you know, starship hurtling through space kind of story. So, got copies coming to you and to uh, Russell. And I'm really well, Greg looking to hear about it. And, and, and Greg is a very good example of a writer who, well into his career, can still surprise you. Yes. Uh, because you know, his, uh, uh, you know his, his, his spy novels are entertaining, but he came across. Then he comes up with City at the uh, End of Time, which is absolutely surprising. I mean, yes. A, a William Hope Hodgson far future, you know, uh, SF apocalypse, which is like nothing else out there. So yeah, he made it. That, that, that's one of those things I will read, wondering what it's going to be like. Yeah. Um, Well, of course, I'm cheating when I ask you the question, what are you looking forward to in the second half of the year? Because obviously I've got something in mind. You're okay. What do you have in mind? Hanu Razaniemi's debut novel, The Quantum Thief, Thief, Uh which is coming out from Golands in September. And it's the first big think, hard SF, Greg Egan-y novel from a debut, you know, first novel we've had in a little while. And Mm -hmm. I think he has the potential to be really someone special. And I'm really interested to see what he does. Uh, I mean, we, we talk a lot about the state of science fiction, and I know in recent conversations we've looked and sort of said, you know, what's happening? There isn't that much coming out. But maybe there is a generation of the Bachigalupis, the Russian Emmys, and whoever else coming along who are going to give us the stuff we need to be reading for the next 10 years. I, I, I was going to say that it's uh, this is really getting in future shock territory, but, you know, we're already talking about who's the next Paolo Bachigalupi. Yeah, uh, here's a guy with two novels out in the book of short stories. And well, I wouldn't say that Rajanemi might be the next Bachigalupi. What I'd say is that he and Bachigalupi may be the next generation, that the, po- the post the Egan generation. Yeah, that's what we're looking for. Yeah, somebody who seems to be a game changer the way Egan seemed to be, and the way Gibson going back to God knows going yeah. back to Bastrana. And I mean, Charlie Strauss was telling me, telling me that Hanu Rajanemi was going to be the next guy eight years mm-hmm. ago. Really. Yeah, I mean, or something like that. I mean, I remember meeting Charlie somewhere, and I'm pretty sure it was when we interviewed him in San Jose for the Worldcon. And at that point, he was saying, there's this guy who's coming to these pub meetings with me and Ken McLeod and Ian Banks, and he just makes all of our jaws drop. You know, he is such a big thinker or whatever else. And so, you know, he may be the guy. I think that's what we're all looking for, a sense of discovery. And there are lots of people. I mean, Charlie Strauss at one point, but Bajagalubi is the most recent one that I feel that way. Yeah, um, well, yeah. maybe Daryl Gregory to some too. Yep. Though he's less so, hard. So are, he's more like a descendant of Cliff Simak almost. And in, in many ways he is. He's almost a, a, a pastoral writer in some ways. Mm-hmm. I agree. Well, this has been fun. I mean, it has been talk, fun. talking to you is always fun, but I mean, it's interesting doing it for a recorded audience. I'll be curious to see how the world responds. I'll try to get it up online as soon as I can. I will look forward to it. Okay. Take good care, my friend. Okay, talk good to talking you. always. Take care of you. Okay. okay. Bye.